Well, here we are, fresh back from Denver. We're joined by Brent again, who's still hanging around. And Chris, hey, hi, how are you doing, gentlemen? Hello. Hey, Brent. Thanks for coming in again. Hey, thanks. It's good to be here. You're like our de-Google correspondent, and we're going to be talking a lot about that this week. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs> yeah, well, my uh, dumbass mentioned de-Googling just the week before we're taking a massive trip, and I'd have zero hours to actually do any prep for the episode. Luckily, the audience saw fit to write in with about 800 emails telling us all the different ways that they're doing it. So... We're going to come across some of those later on in the show. But in the meantime, this episode is brought to you by a cloud guru, the leader in learning for the cloud, Linux, and other modern tech skills. Hundreds of courses and thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. Did I followed through on my challenge, Alex? I de-googled my map experience, which was crazy because we are on the road and I was navigating Denver and now Colorado Springs for the entire time that the duration of this challenge. So I, I will report back on my results when we get to the feedback. But I think we should start with this news story that, I don't know, it's kind of a bummer, actually. I was really sad to see this, yes. Uh, back in episode 33, we did a review of the Helios 64 arm-powered, ultimate arm-powered NAS. And, and unfortunately, the COBOL team today have announced on their blog that they're pulling the plug. Yeah, no more. They're not even going to do the next batch that there's already orders in the pipeline for. They say it really comes down to just two key points. There's ongoing difficulties with manufacturing and procuring parts and costs of getting higher and higher. That's been a problem. And they say, number two, they made a rookie mistake. They stretched themselves too thin. They essentially went into the Helio 64 while just being a three-man show. And they should have brought more people on board. And they burned out. You know, we got a really interesting insight into this manufacturing difficulties during our System 76 factory tour last week, where Jeremy, who is the guy that designed some of the firmware chips and uh, some of the firmware itself for the launch keyboard, was saying that they had to redesign on the fly two or three times some of the circuitry in that keyboard because parts would go out of stock within hours. And that he decided in the end to go ahead and order several, you know, hundred units of the parts they needed before he'd actually finished the firmware so that it didn't go out of stock before he finished writing the code. So if that's what System76 are up against, then they're a, probably a much larger player in this space than, than COBOL. Uh, I can only imagine some of the issues that those guys are having. It's a shame, though, because I think there's a lot of passion for an ARM-powered NAS, specifically for those of us who are looking for low power solutions, we had some hopes that Helios was going to produce that for us. Well, I think this uh, speaks to some motivations that I've been feeling lately, particularly after the last week, getting the tour of the factory and seeing all the CNC machines and all the powder coating stuff. And I mean, if ever you get the chance to be in Denver and do a tour of System 76, I'm not affiliated with them in any way. You know, they're not a sponsor of the show or anything. Although they do sponsor other JB shows. Just Coder, but yeah. Oh, just Coder. That's right. I mean, you know, maybe we should have them sponsor this show because they make those, those uh, Thaleoses would make great Nazes. So maybe they should be. <laughs> it was a truly inspirational experience for me. So I'm sat here thinking, okay, Cobol, who was my, my hope, my light in this space has just bowed out. Maybe Alex should start a company and <laughs> build the ultimate Naz. You know, maybe I should do that. I think you've got a little bit of experience, Alex, and uh, some trials and tribulations that you've gone through already. So maybe you're perfectly suited. You could prototype 3D print the enclosure. Well, you know, that was one of the things that struck me. I know, I know we, this is turning into a System 76 factory chore recap, but 
This is one of the things that struck me most during that tour, actually. I asked them, you know, do you use 3D printing for your prototypes? And they were like, well, no, it's just easier to do it in metal, isn't it? And I'm like, is it? (laughs) Yeah, they used to. Back in the day, they did. I think one of the realities is that it's, with the equipment they have, it's faster to make it out of metal. It is really, you know, I think the reason why you keep coming back to it, Alex, is because so it is so hard to appreciate the amount of work that goes into manufacturing. And it's, that's an obvious thing to say, but when you go to the factory and you see every little thing they had to consider and when they're bringing things in as a block of aluminum and what's coming out on the other end is a keyboard or a case, you, you really have no idea how intricate that process is until you see it. And I think that's what is probably, I mean, that's what's resonated with me and stuck with me. And I got to imagine probably for you too. Yeah, well, one example was Carl, who is the founder of System76. I was just stood next to a, a shelf with loads of different parts in it, and I picked up what looked like an innocuous little nameplate, you know, about the size of a dog tag or something like that. And he jumped straight into a five-minute discussion telling me about all the different, you know, reasons why they pick that particular size, how it goes through their laser etching machine, and how they're considering doing direct engraving instead, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, wow, if that's... If that's the amount of thought that goes into a nameplate or a serial number plate, whew, this is going to be a big mountain to solve if I want to try and do it myself. <laughs> that's where I. That's what I take from it. You take from it, hmm, maybe Alex could make a Nash. That could be cool. I take from it, oh my God, I would have to build a factory and I would have to learn all this stuff. Oh, but that sounds fun, doesn't it? Uh, daunting, but fun. <laughs> I, yeah. If I had another life... <laughs> If I had, if I had like, you know, another hundred years, I definitely would get into it for sure. <laughs> but you manufacture stuff every week as well and you ship podcasts every week. Okay. You're not manufacturing aluminium into, you know, computer cases, but you ship and manufacture stuff just the same. That's true. And there have been many times when we refer to our production pipeline as kind of a manufacturing pipeline. And if, if one component is delayed or, you know, gets out of, uh, out of order, it does cause a jam up. There is a lot of that kind of building tech around that. Maybe that's why I don't have the appetite to do it again, but I definitely would sit here and encourage you. I'll, I'll be customer number one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be number two. Well, there's a lot of roadblocks to overcome. Um, but if I could just bring it back to COBOL for a minute, you know, one of the things I picked up on in my review was that the product wasn't a hundred percent finished. And I got to believe that with this news, that some of the issues that were present with that NAS now, will never be solved. You know, things like the back plane breaking some of the, the the plastic tabs, you know, the power connector and data connector on three of my hard drives, it turned out eventually. Yeah. Problems with the two and a half gigabit network adapter. Uh, there was a bunch of other stuff as well. You know, you can go and listen to episode 33 if you want the full review. But I worry now this means that some of this stuff's never going to get fixed. Do you think you killed them? Do you think that bad review killed them, Alex? You murdered them. Oh, don't say that. I mean, I didn't mean to. I was just trying to be honest. (laughs) It was presented in a way that I felt was constructive to say, look, there are these, it's a very promising piece of hardware. I mean, the aluminium chassis was, was really lovely, but there was just a couple of key things that let it down, you know, in terms of manufacturing tolerances and a couple of firmware things. But overall they did a really great job. And I, I I wish there was some way we could tell them that, you know, even though we weren't a hundred percent positive, it was just because we loved the idea, not because we didn't want them to carry on and succeed. I agree completely. And they don't completely close the door in their blog post. We'll have that linked in the show notes. If you want it, they do kind of leave it cracked a little bit, like maybe it'll come back, but I wanted to shift gears and talk about something that could solve a big problem for me. I actually went out and I pre-ordered 
a bunch of Wise 3 cameras a long time ago. And I have a box <laughs> of Wise 3 cameras that I haven't installed because they do not yet have an RTMP firmware or an RTSP firmware for Wise 3. But Alex, I think you've solved that this week. Yeah, I don't know where I came across this, but uh, I found a Docker container that is called Docker Wise Bridge. Link in the show notes, of course. And essentially what this does is you give it your Wise username and password, and it goes and sort of acts as an intermediary between the, the Wise API and the cameras, and somehow it hooks into the local feed on the cameras on your LAN and then presents you with a normal RTSP stream. So I've just got that feeding into Blue Iris and it just works. That's fascinating. And yeah, it, it will. It can actually do both. It can pull from the WISE servers using your credentials or with your credentials. It can use that. There's a library that the app uses and it essentially does a discovery on your network. And the WISE app does this as well. And if it detects the camera, it uses LAN mode and, and it just does that locally and avoids the, the cloud relay. And you can also, in your Docker Compose, there is an environment variable you can pass through that says LAN underscore only that says don't even, don't even try the remote thing. Only stream if you can locally detect them. And that was the piece I was curious about. That's why I dug into this. And that means I could absolutely do this here in the RV, which means I could replace these wise cams that have been giving me trouble. The version two was good, but just didn't have enough horsepower. Didn't really work so great at night. And the wise three solves those. And with this uh, Docker wise bridge, which seems to have a decent community around it as well. And some active development. I think my problems have been solved and uh, I'll give this a go. I think once we get back into uh, our home base. So far as I can tell, it only works on the V3 cameras. So I've got a couple of V2s flashed with the RTSP firmware and a couple of V3s. And the app will, in its logs, show me a bunch of errors for the two V2 cameras. I don't know if that's because I'm running the you know custom firmware or whatever, whatever it is. But uh, the performance with the V3s is great. We've been using it as a baby monitor for my daughter. And the night vision on there is just, it's like daytime. It's wonderful. They blew it out of the park with the night vision. It's tricky with the firmwares. So this is an issue and I'm glad you brought it up because we need to mention this on the show. Um, and they have it on their GitHub page. There is a slightly older version of the firmware for V2 that is compatible with the bridge. But if you use the latest firmware for V2, it doesn't work. And that actually holds true um, for some instances of the V3 model too. So there's a version that does work and there's a version that doesn't work with the V3 and the pan camera as well. Anyways, the link's in the show notes. You do need to check into that uh, because I may have uh, I may have a uh, really old firmware. And so I'm going to have a hard time getting just the right compatible firmware in some cases, but they have all the information you need. Back in episode 48, we talked about the Pi KVM, you know, that wonderful Raspberry Pi that captures HDMI and basically acts like a, a BMC KVM type thing. Well, good news. Their version three hat has finally entered Kickstarter mode. It is a little pricey. So the main hat, which doesn't include a Raspberry Pi, costs $145. So by the time you've added a Pi as well and a case, it's going to be north of $200. Uh, but you do get a lot of useful stuff in there, like a USB-C bridge and CSI you know, cables, all that kind of stuff. Now, Wendell's done a video about this on his channel on YouTube. So if you're curious, you can go and find out more about it over there. I do wonder about the price. And what do you think, Chris, at, at that sort of $200 level? Is that, is that too much? 
So it looks like right now on Kickstarter, uh, it's 145 bucks, and you'd get it by October 2021, which seems pretty reasonable to me. The price is it, it, it's yeah, it feels high for a hat. Um, now I think the price is a little more reasonable if you make the assumption that just about everybody already has a Raspberry Pi four that would want to use something like this, right? If you're going to use a Raspberry Pi powered keyboard, video, mouse switcher. <laughs> You probably already got a couple of pies laying around. So I don't think, I think you just kind of null that out because that's already a sunk cost. And so it really is just 145 bucks. Now you tell me, Alex, like how solid is this? Is this, are you still using it? Is it worth 145 bucks now that you've used it for a bit? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I probably couldn't get a good KVM at that price. I probably couldn't. So I'd have to go with, I'd have to go with your word though, if it's worth that. Well, I'll tell you what I'm comparing it to in my mind, at least. And that is a motherboard with IPMI built in. So I'm actually going back to England in a couple of weeks to go and introduce granddaughter to grandparents. So hello, if you're listening. And as part of that, I was thinking, well, it would be nice to upgrade my, you know, nearly 10 year old server in England with a slightly more modern motherboard and a slightly more modern IPMI implementation that isn't based around Java. And an eighth gen motherboard costs me around $150, give or take, depending on the features that I want. And I was looking at some ASRock rack stuff, which, thanks to you know the current chip shortage, seems to be in the $300, $250 to $300 range. And so if I look at that and think, I've got a built-in IPMI directly on the motherboard that I know is going to be absolutely rock solid versus an external device which in my experience has been good, but it's still an external device. And, you know, it's another power supply. It's another operating system to keep updated, et cetera, et cetera, which in some respects could be a good thing in, in other respects could be a bad thing. So the cost is kind of a wash, you know, it's, it's about the same to get a built in versus this external unit. Probably just go for the built in one, to be honest with you. Um, except for the fact that this Pi version using the HDMI switch, which is linked in the blog post in episode 48 um, that I talked about in that episode, uh, I've actually got three devices hanging off this single Pi, and that has actually worked really, really well. So if you're able to spit that $150 between three devices, suddenly that tips the scales quite a bit. Hmm. I also could see some value in there if you needed to add it to devices that IPMI wouldn't be an option. Like, I, you know, I'd love to have console level access to my studio machines right now while I'm remote, while I'm here in Denver. Or your other Raspberry Pis? Yeah, that too. It would be a great way to get console access to my Raspberry Pis. Oh, okay. All right. Now you're making me, you're making me think maybe I should back this. (laughs) Damn it, Alex. Well, now I've actually been in Lady Dupes. I've seen how you cool your air quote server cupboard. (laughs) It's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey man, I just got to get airflow. That's all that matters. I just got to get airflow. <laughs> How hot was it in the uh, in the RV whilst you were parked at System Seventy Six last week? One hundred and seven. Yeah, it was one hundred and seven. I think the hottest we ever got in here though was actually Nebraska. I think it got near one hundred and twenty in here while we were recording. Which actually, it was impressive because the server quote room was the coolest place in the whole RV at that time. <laughs> Here's an email from Hans. Han says, hey guys, you touched upon password managers and Bitwarden in episode 51. Like Brent, I'm using KeePass XC. Good, 
good choice. What I like about it is that it's easy to back up because the whole database is just a single file. Currently sync it between my devices via self-hosted sync thing instance running on an ARM board in our laundry room. Laundry room servers. Very nice. That being said, this setup is a few years old, and if I would start from scratch or if I had to share the password with other people, I'd definitely give Bitwarden a look. One thing I wonder, though, when you host your passwords in a more complex application like Bitwarden, are you taking any extra measures to secure your servers? I suppose it's reasonable to trust the security of Bitwarden itself, but if an attacker would gain access to your server, would it be easier for them to do harm as compared to what you would just host an encrypted KeyPass database file to? Thanks, and keep on going, Hans. Well, I think it depends on how open your server is. If it's connected to the internet, you've got to assume at some point, you know, it's possible it might get compromised. But it it speaks to a larger philosophy that I tend to subscribe to with this kind of stuff of don't be the tallest nail, you know, take some basic precautions, have things like fail to ban installed on your SSH logins, open as few ports in your firewall as you possibly can, use something like WireGuard or TailScale or something like that to actually connect to the service in question so that all the data that travels between everything is encrypted, you know, and use things like SSH keys instead of passwords. Just, just those things alone are going to make you more secure than the average server administrator. Vault Warden is the new hotness these days. Bitwarden RS is the old name. Um, and I do agree with everything you just said, Alex. Don't don't be the tallest nail, but also consider the security of the box if possible, limit internet access. And also keep in mind, Bitwarden is using local encryption. So it encrypts and hashes your data on your local device before it sends it to the cloud server, even, even if it's their service or your self-hosted service. So that gives you some peace of mind knowing that the data that's at rest on the server is encrypted. Now, Alex, you mentioned uh, being a shorter nail. Um, Have either of you in all of your years encountered situations when you were one of the taller nails and ran into issues? You mean like had a server compromised? Basically, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, it's never very exciting. Um, It's usually like a server gets turned into an FTP box or somebody gets a process on your machine. I mean, I think I've had maybe a client or two that that's happened to. Um, it's never anything uh, more exciting than somebody trying to mine crypto or something these days. <laughs> Can I admit something to you both? Oh, yeah. I used to run remote desktop open to the internet with the password 22. <gasps> you ah. maniac. For like three years. And how'd that go, Alex? <laughs> well, uh, it didn't end well, Brent. It didn't end well at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Tell oh, us. No. Uh, they decided to wipe my hard drives. Oh, no. Oh, that sucks. That sucks. I suppose maybe that's better than using it for something nefarious, or maybe they did, and then they wiped it so there's no track. So maybe they did do something nefarious. I have no idea. I mean, if your password is 2-2, maybe, (laughs) you know, maybe old Alex didn't know how to check. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, back in the day, that 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 was something, you know, you just didn't really think of, like, way back in the day. Things were just on the internet. When I... When I first got exposure to TCP IP networking, everything had a public internet address on the network. And it wasn't until sometime later that we had firewalls and NATs. And so for a short period of time, you could basically connect to everything. <laughs> there was some crazy stuff we did back then. I didn't want to put you guys on the spot, but I would be curious about how to go about detecting some of this stuff, You know, even from a most very basic level. 
Mm. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure, Alex, you probably have a few ideas. My first couple that come to mind would be know what processes should be running on your box, check your logs. Um, I mean, almost every single time that a client machine or something was behaving poorly, I could almost immediately just suss it out by running top. <laughs> I mean, really, because, you know, you know what that machine's supposed to be doing. And if there's some process going crazy on there that has nothing to do with the responsibilities of that box, you got a pretty good idea what it is. Um, and then you look at your logs, right? You look at the active users that are logged onto the system um, and you kind of start tracing it back. Usually you'll look at the process and there'll be like some weird path or URL for a, for a process that looks normal, but it's in the wrong place or it's being run by the wrong user. And, you kind of track it back from there. Depends where your expertise lies. If you're a networking guy, you could use something like Snort, which is essentially uh, a packet filter. And it looks for certain patterns of packets. Yeah, or bandwidth charts as well. You know, that sometimes will be an indication something's up as you'll see your bandwidth usage spikes up. And would you guys say that containerizing some of your services is a way to help this situation? <laughs> No, <laughs> no, <laughs> All right. No, I mean, really, in a way, it makes it worse. I think it makes it worse because there's more processes and more things going on on a box in some cases. But you do have better security in terms of networking control and process isolation and the ability to just destroy a container and recreate it if something did go sideways. So it's I mean, it's a mix. I think it's good and bad. But I'm sure, Alex, you must have thought you must have thoughts. Well, containers good. Everything else bad. Right. That's my viewpoint. But uh, oh, man. <laughs> I think. I think containers are better in this situation because let's say you've got an Nginx web server listening with your uh, vault warden behind it or, or whatever the web server is that's exposing your passwords to you. If somebody was to compromise something in that code and do a buffer overflow or do something that meant they could get something out of memory that they shouldn't and e extrapolate some data that they shouldn't get, the blast radius of that is going to be limited to the scope that that container has access to and so it, running things in a container is more secure simply by virtue of the fact that you are scoping what that container has access to on the host system yeah i mean it will have access to any of the data that the container has access to which is likely important data but it's contained to that region that's inherently more safe than say running apache or nginx on a box and you pop apache and now you've got access to anything on that host that apache had access to which if you're lucky is not much but sometimes is way more than it should be so yeah um that it's it's going to be different every time too there's not a one-size-fits-all solution it's trying to make sure you're secure and monitoring in multiple locations we got a lot of email about people's Wi-Fi systems. We got some people who love mesh setups, some people who hate mesh setups, but we got one email in about a free mesh wireless solution. It's at freemeshwireless.com. It's an open source package that uh, you load onto hardware. Um, and then we got some people that said, don't do it. Just deploy multiple APs. So I'm still collecting information and taking it all in. And I got a few devices to research too. So I wanted to say thank you to everybody who sent in suggestions for different Wi-Fi setups. Wow. There's a lot out there, including some of you who said, you know what? Just stick with Unify. It's fine. It's fine. Well, okay. Just one guy. <laughs> and several folks, Brent, were happy with your recommendation of checking out Micritic. It's almost like I know something. <laughs> we had a lot of emails in regards to de-Googling, and it really ran the whole spectrum. We're going to try to get to some of them. But legitimately, Brent, you saw the list. There's just no way we could read all those emails. 
Yeah, you gave me a little sneak peek at just the number of just sheer scrolled, number of emails. I just scrolled and, through the list. Oh, we did our best, but we've It's a lot of email. Yeah. But Dustin was one of the first to write in. Uh, and Dustin was at the Boise meetup with us, Brent. He says, On today's self hosted, you guys talked about de Googling. Uh, this is my journey, and it has been for two years. And I'd say I'm about 90% of the way there. Dustin goes on to say, This includes replacing G Suite for my podcast. And I've also gone with the model of self hosting when it makes sense. So here's what he's done. For mail, contacts, and calendar, he switched from G Suite to FastMail. For notes and docs, he's using Joplin using Nextcloud to sync it. For photo sync, he's using Nextcloud. For his phone, he's gone with the iPhone SE 2020, so he's not dealing with Google there. For DNS, he's using NextDNS. We got another vote for NextDNS as well. Uh, for maps, he's using a combination of Apple Maps and the OpenStreetMaps uh, app on the App Store. And for the browser, he's sticking with Firefox and Safari. And for his Chromebook, well, he's replaced that with a ThinkPad X260 with Arch and now Fedora on there. He's still working on the home assistants. He's going to maybe consider the HomePods and look at Mycroft. He says, Google Photos has been working great for my wife, uh, but I'm not using it. And he's using FreeTube to bypass YouTube, but it has been a bit of a challenge, I suspect. Some good tips there. Although um, FastMail... Uh, isn't self-hosting. It is, you know, having somebody else host it. But if you're going to have somebody host something, email is a good one to do. <laughs> don't, don't really do, don't do, don't do email. What I noticed from that feedback is that it took him. Well, he's on a two-year journey, and so, gentlemen, uh, what does that tell you about what you've just got on? <sighs> that Alex has really, really gotten us into something. What have <laughs> I done? I've opened Pandora's box here, have I? <laughs> oh man. Um, all right, so Carson and others wrote in about, about maps. Carson says he settled on Here Maps as a replacement, wego.here.com. A lot of people wrote in about OpenStreetMaps. Brent, that's what you use? Yeah, that's what I have been using until all these suggestions came in. And I, well, maybe I'll keep that till we talk about the maps a little bit more. Well, I want to talk about it right now because uh, that's the route I decided to go during a freaking road trip. And I even really briefly tried Waze, even though I know it's owned by Google. I just wanted to just do a comparison. And Waze actually screwed us up the worst out of all of them. During the middle of Denver rush hour, it had me get off the highway to like bypass the traffic. And then I got off the highway and I was stuck in more traffic. And then it did a quick update and it said, get on the highway. Yeah, it felt to me like a an attempt at like a Dukes of Hazard style, like walk around the traffic. But, uh, <laughs> but it didn't work out too well for yeah. us. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So I know a lot of you wrote in with the apps that you love, and I tried them, and boy, do they stink. Magic Earth was one that I liked, um, and that uses OpenStreetMaps with a proprietary GUI on top, uh, Magic Earth. Have a link to, in the show notes. But um, they they all have one critical flaw. Even Apple Maps has this critical flaw, and it's search. It, uh, for example, I'm here in Colorado Springs. And I searched for Pikes Peak, which is a very popular tourist destination. <laughs> Apple Maps sent me in the wrong direction. They sent me to some like business that was named Pikes Peak that was like 10 miles in the wrong direction. Literally the opposite direction. Um, the Magic Earth, using OpenStreetMaps, wanted to send me to a location 5,200 miles away from my current location. 
I was 25, 30 minutes away when I started from Pike's Peak. And after I was done trying to use these other nav apps, I ended up an hour away. And I was really bad. Um, eventually, what happened is my wife looked it up on her phone on Google Maps and got uh, got an address and then telegrammed it to me. And then I put that into Apple Maps and manually did it You're that an way. animal. Um, yeah, it was interesting because she, she kept using uh, Google Maps during this. Um, anytime I drove or anytime I was looking anything up or looking, at, I used anything but Google Maps. And she stuck with Google Maps. So I was always comparing the two. And they, they clearly have the superior um, search. However, Apple Maps surprised me. And I looked into the privacy and security of Apple Maps because, I mean, that was really what part of this was about was reducing my cloud footprint with this. And uh the thing I liked about Apple Maps is surprisingly, you don't even have to be signed into any Apple ID or iCloud to use it. The data that they do collect is associated with a randomly generated identifier. They reset like every few minutes and it is not tied to your Apple ID. They convert precise locations into less exact locations before they store them. And then they apply that to your current device location information and origin within 24 hours. And uh, any, any of the personalized features like where your car is parked or suggested departure times, um, your favorite locations, any of that kind of stuff that you generate, it's all stored on device. They don't send it up to the Apple servers at all. It seems to me the way they've defined how Apple Maps works is sort of their privacy first approach that they've been um, sharing throughout the years. Um, yeah, but I'm they, not going to say it's perfect. But it feels like they got most of it right, yeah. considering all of the sort of technical stuff that has to happen to get you around in, on a Maps app. And well, or uh, or another way is it feels like they designed a product to say to say screw you to Google on data collection and stuff like that. And did it work? Well, um, the display is probably the best. The other thing that I found surprisingly good is the voice routing. It does. It has really good, clear, like it, it, very clear about which lane to be in, which isn't too uncommon, and it's. Is very clear about intersections. And here in the Colorado Denver area, they stack the intersections. So it's, you go, you drive through an intersection and then three or four car lengths later, there is another intersection. And so when you look on a map, you're not really sure like what light to turn on. To, and the voice prompt is very clear. It'll say, go through this light. And at the next light, take a left, be in the middle lane. And when you're, when you're now, you're new to an area and it's dark and you're coming up on two intersections and you know you've got a left turn or a right turn, that kind of clarity just makes it low stress. Then additionally, they tie in with the watch, so it taps your arm when you need to turn. And when you were driving, I was able to just look at my watch and tell you what the next turn is. Yeah, that was really handy. I will admit that um, halfway through the trip, I kind of gave up on my phone and my map <laughs> app because, well, we were doing this this experiment and... Um, my methods were failing. So uh, you were in the nav seat and you were helping me out and that actually worked out all right. I think I'm going to stick with it. I don't think I'm after the, I mean, I said I'd do it for two weeks and I think I'm going to stick with it. Um, I'll let my, you know, my wife also have Google Maps as a backup, but for me, I'm uninstalling Google Maps off the phone. Wow. Yeah. So that's quite a success. Yeah. It's not open street maps, uh, although I am playing with those still. And I do really like the way Magic Earth displays things. So for some circumstances, like if I already know the address and I'm not searching up something, they may have a place still, but um, I I was I was pretty impressed. Um, you know, if you only could have one app and you didn't care about Google tracking you, I'd probably still suggest you use Google Maps. 
You know, I, for the trip, used um, the same app that I've been using for probably the last two years since I've tried this degoogling a while ago, uh, mostly successfully. And uh, so I'm on Android and I've been using OpenStreetMap, the OSM and Plus. There are things I love about it and things I hate about it. Uh, the one thing you mentioned search, uh, I find it's great if you know approximately where you want to go. If you're trying to find an exact business or even an exact address on a popular street, it's not necessarily going to have it. It might have some of the street numbers, but certainly not all of them. I found that to be a little bit frustrating, but it gets me there. I will say 90% of the time it works for me, but I like getting lost in new cities. So maybe that's a unique uh, approach. Well, there's that, if you don't mind getting lost. That's a feature. Yeah, for Brent. Uh, <laughs> the thing I liked about the OpenStreetMaps app is that you could download your maps offline. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. OSM and Plus is $25. That's quite a lot, isn't it, for an app? Well, you know, it's not $25 for me when I get it from uh, F-Droid. Ah, there you go, you see. I've been using ViewRanger uh, for quite a number of years. Whenever I take a hike or something like that, I actually this, this is a, a, a very long-term usage for me uh, from back when I lived in England. It supports things like ordnance survey maps, and you can download US geological survey maps. You can buy them uh, and actually buy the tiles directly in ViewRanger. They're changing their name to Outdoor Active, uh, so you can find them at ViewRanger.com. I've found that one pretty good. Brent there mentioned F-Droid. Um, we got several people, including Ross, who wrote in and said, I like the Aurora store. It's an alternative front end for Google Play, which keeps your data away while giving you access to those apps that are exclusive. <laughs> He's like, that's the only way I could get the Starlink app. I, I will admit I have Aurora Droid installed and I prefer it over F-Droid most of the time. It has a few little tiny bugs, but I didn't know that was a feature. So that's great to hear. Ross says that he switched to ProtonMail from Gmail, and I've used ProtonMail, and I like it a lot. Um, so there's something there. There, there was also uh, a lot of people wrote in about their different approaches to contact syncing. And Brent, did you cover in last week's episode how you do that? I think I did, but I'll do it again. Uh, I'm using Nextcloud for contact syncing, oh, right, and I've found right. that to be pretty bulletproof, actually. I was worried at first when I did it a while ago um, because contacts are, is arguably the thing that's most important to me. Uh, getting all of that right and it's been bulletproof well dale writes in i just listened to episode 51 and i think brent mentioned nextcloud yes confirmed we just had that confirmed by brent thank you and i wondered if any of you have heard or used etsy sync that's ete sync.com it's a self-hostable project whose value proposition is secure end-to-end encrypted and privacy respecting sync for your contacts calendars tasks and notes I've been using it for about two years now, and more recently I've been using it on my GNOME desktop. I pay for them to manage the hosting and syncing, but you could absolutely host it yourself. Highly recommend it. Thanks for the great show and all the best, Dale. ETEsync.com. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. I looked at it uh, before the show, and it it's a solution that really is kind of targeted at just a end-to-end encrypted sync of contact calendar task notes. Like it just solves that problem. That's what they focus on. And they've got apps in the Apple app store, Google play. They're on F droid too. And uh, of course you can get it on your desktop. It looks, it looks pretty legit actually. I think I just decrypted what their name means. E to E sync is end to end sync, isn't it? Ah, I was wondering. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> it's one of those moments you figure it out and you're like, Oh, I feel like a dummy now. <laughs> 
You know, if I could mention one thing about Nextcloud, uh, on Android at least, that made it possible for me and integrates it at a system level everywhere, uh, is this little app called DevX5. Um, it takes the Nextcloud syncing, which is CalDAV and CardDAV, and just sort of makes that available at a system level in the same exact places and ways that all of the Google stuff appears. So it's just seamless. So that oh. would be a huge recommendation from me. Say it again for me. Dev X5, available in F-Droid and maybe in other stores. Can you put a link in the show notes for us, Brent? Oh, probably. So what did you guys think of the meetup? It was pretty cool to meet some of our listeners, huh? Yeah, we saw a Chris and the Badger shirt there, which was exciting because I hadn't considered that somebody would get a shirt with the intention of bringing it to the meetup. That was great. That was Optimus Gray rocking the Chris and the Badger. Yeah, I thought that was super cool. He posed for a picture with us. And we had to stand on the correct sides as well. You know, I was on the Badger side and you were on the Chris side. Right. My daughter thought it was so cool that people wanted to take selfies with us. And I was like, really? That's the thing you think is cool? All right. Okay. Well, I thought the free donuts were pretty cool. Linode put on a heck of a show for us. Yeah, uh, you know, Brent and I and Wes went to grab those donuts, and that was quite the journey because it was 150 donuts, and it was in downtown Denver during Friday rush hour. I don't know what we were thinking. (laughs) And so at a certain point, I saw a little bit of Canadian road rage emerge out of Brent when this truck... Brent had gotten to a battle with a truck downtown and uh, he had to kind of cut in front of the truck because a lane was ending and the truck driver never forgave him for it. (laughs) Does Brent get angry? I mean, not disgruntled. I got slightly more aggressive in my driving. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, It was one of those situations where you just got to get over and you got to do everything you can. And uh, it wasn't too bad, actually, I thought. But that, that truck decided to very aggressively yeah. pass us on the right hand side he had to work at it too oh yeah and promptly cut us off again <laughs> on the left hand side we're just trying to make a donut run <laughs> i don't think he realized what we were trying to accomplish oh i know hey before we go i want to say thank you to our members our sres make this show possible selfhoster.show slash sre if you'd like to sign up you get a discount on our merch at jupitergarage.com and you get access to the exclusive post show with your own RSS feed at selfhosted.show slash SRE. And I want to mention you can find our sponsor at Cloud Guru on social media. Essentially, any social media site, they're just slash at Cloud Guru. YouTube, Twitter, the Facebooks, you know, the social medias slash at Cloud Guru. And as you all well know by this point, selfhosted.show slash contact is the place to go to get in touch with us. You can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. I'm at Chris LAS. And I'm at Brent Gervais. And the show is at Self-Hosted Show. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was selfhosted.show slash 52. So I got a little time before the show today and I thought, hey, I'll go do the tourist thing and I'll check out Pikes Peak. I was talking about how I was searching for it, right? So I I finally get up to Pikes Peak, but because we kind of went off course for a bit and I didn't really think about the fact that we're going from like 6,000 feet to 14,000 feet, I didn't stop and get gas. So we pull up and the ranger, because you got to pay. So the ranger gal, she's, she takes my card and she says, all right, it's 30 bucks for the both of you. 30 bucks, I think. Well, all right, fine. You know, I'm here with the wife. We're having an experience. That's fine. 30 bucks. So she pays for it. She says, okay, now, um, are you familiar with the lower gears of your car? <laughs> what? Are you familiar with the, with the first and the second gear, sir? I'm like, yeah, I'm familiar with first and second gear. <laughs> what kind of question is that? It's like, well, uh, when you're coming back down the mountain, it's really important you don't use your brakes. You're going to overheat and you need to use first and second gear. 
first of all, first gear would have had that engine revving at like six or 7,000 RPMs going down that hill. It's a super steep decline. Uh, But I say, okay, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So we start climbing the hill and you know, you're going up, right? And so while you're climbing, you're in second and third gear and it's just, you're grinding it out and you don't really want to do faster than 20, 25 miles per hour because there's people that are doing the, the stop and take a picture thing. There's construction trucks coming and going. And so I'm, I'm climbing this hill and I really can't get faster than 25 miles per hour. And so I'm just like stuck. And I, I think I, I imagine it was probably second gear actually. And I look down and I swear to God, I saw the gas gauge dip, dip. And I look down and it says 60 miles. And I realized because the mapping software had sent us like nearly an hour off course and stuff, we didn't really account for the fact that we'd used up gas driving back and driving out there. And then we were climbing this hill and we only had, and it was, and then it drops down to 58 miles, 57 miles. 55 miles. I'm like, what? I'm not, that's no way I've gone a mile, you know? And I start sweating it out. And so we got up to 8,000 feet and I had to turn around. Oh no. So you didn't make it to the top? I didn't make it. <laughs> Chris. I know. And then, and then I'm going on the way down and the people in front of me, they weren't shifting down. They were using their brakes. And so they were doing like this thing where they'd build up a ton of speed and then they'd gun the brakes, you know? And so they would, they would drop from like 50 miles per hour to 20 miles per hour and they would do it over and over again in their Porsche SUV. And I'm like, come on, man, just shift down a little bit and just coast. People just don't know how to drive on those, on those hills. But, uh, I took all my RV experience from passes and applied it to coming down the hill and we made it fine. But we rolled into the gas sta- gas station with like 20 miles left on the tank or something. So we made it. So if you want to make it to the top, you know there's a cog railway, right? That goes all the way to the top. Well, now I do. <laughs> 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 it's owned by the same company who owned the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs. I know this because it was my wedding anniversary <laughs> last week and I was going to book my wife in with the, at the Broadmoor and we were going to take the train up the mountain and everything. But instead, we spent the evening with uh, Brent in, uh, in in Denver, and we went to the botanical gardens, and it was wonderful. That was quite nice. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's Alex- what you did for your anniversary, though. Oh, Alex. <laughs> well, no, no. Brent babysat the my daughter, and my wife and I went out for dinner, and it was it was a really lovely evening. So, thank you, Brent. You're welcome. Uh, you know, Alex, I'm always impressed with how much knowledge you have of seemingly every place we ever go to. So, uh, I, I, you know, you've only been here. Well, I've got a couple more things for you on Pike's Peak, if you like. Uh, they're both car related. Sure, yeah. Let's... <laughs> okay. So uh, I have a bit of a problem with altitude. So I, I can't really, you know, once, once I get over like 10,000 feet, it's it's no good for me. So uh, anyway, I do a bit of research. But you're training to be a pilot, right? Yeah, that could be, a, that could be an issue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, talking of Pikes Peak, there's a couple of videos I put links in the show notes for. One of them is Ken Block, you know, the Hoonigan guy. He has done a climb Kana at Pikes Peak. So he's doing, you know, sliding, you know, four-wheel drifts around some of these turns. Uh, inches from death, literally inches from death. It's pretty terrifying, honestly, in places. Uh, and another one is the Volkswagen IDR. That's their electric vehicle that sets records around the Nürburgring and stuff like that. This thing climbed the entire Pikes Peak road course in 7 minutes and 57 seconds. Whoa. Wow. You should consider that next time, Chris. 671 horsepower in that thing. 
dual motor, one per axle. Yeah, that's got to be a blast. There's some, there are some steep edges. Like you screw up and you're going over Richard Hammond style and you're not coming back. It's bad. Can you even imagine racing up that thing? No. Now you've both been almost, well, almost to the top. Uh, is this just like endless switchbacks? Yes. It gets more switchbacky too. The higher up you get, it's it gets pretty crazy. I didn't even get to the to the best of it. It was genuinely good driving, and if there wasn't people around me, I could have really enjoyed it. We should uh, go now. I know I paid thirty bucks. 